Welcome to the Charlotte Mason Poetry Podcast, where we strive to share an authentic interpretation of Mason's life work. We thank you for joining us and hope you enjoy the program. Editor's Note. This week, we continue our journey through The Changing Year. For more information on how to use this inspiring resource by Florence Haynes, please see the episode entitled A Walk in February. We hope this week's episode will give you interesting ideas for special studies, as well as a nudge to go outside yourself to explore nature this unique time of year. A Walk in August from The Changing Year by Florence M. Haynes The sixth was August, being rich arrayed in garment all of gold down to the ground. Yet rode he not, but led a lovely maid forth by the lily hand. The witch was crowned with ears of corn, and full her hand was found. That was the righteous virgin, which of old lived here on earth, and plenty made abound. But after wrong was loved and justice sold, she left the unrighteous world and was to heaven extolled. Spencer August was originally sextilis, the sixth month, but July having been assigned to Julius Caesar, the month following was called after his successor Octavius, by whom the name Augustus, afterwards borne by each Roman emperor in turn, had been assumed. Augustus was born in September, and it was first proposed that this should be the month to be renamed, but the preference was given to Sextilis, both as immediately following that of the emperor's predecessor, and because this month had proved an auspicious one to Augustus. In it, he had been admitted to the consulate, celebrated three triumphs, received the oath of allegiance from the Janiculum legions, brought Egypt under the power of Rome, and ended the civil wars. Sextilis, therefore, was selected by the Senate for the honor, and a day, taken from February, was added to the original 30. Verstigan calls it Arn, Harvest Monat, and Barn Monat, meaning thereby the filling of the barns with corn. And that it is a busy month, the French couplet attests, Qui dort en ou, dort à son cou. And, En ou, quiconque dormira, sur midi, s'en repentira. For now, the reapers to the scene repair with hook in hand and bottles slung and dowless scrip beside them hung. The sickles stubble all the ground and fitful hasty laughs go round. The meals are done as soon as tasted and neither time nor viands wasted. The Germans say that fine weather on St. Lawrence's Day, August 10th, means a good wine year. And Regnetz on Laurenti Tag gept es viele Mäuse, while French and Italians believe that s'il pleut à la Saint-Laurent, la pluie vient à temps. Si elle vient à Notre-Dame, chacun encore l'aime. Si la pluie vient à Saint-Barthélemy, souffle lui au derrière. Another proverb, however, tells us that S'il pleut à la Saint-Barthélemy, il y aura assez de rave et de regain. While in England, we say Saint-Bartholomew brings the cold dew. For now, 
The nights begin to grow chilly. The summer is waning. The black cap is heard for the last time ere his departure for Africa. The swifts are going or gone. The swallows are making them ready to fly. And each young robin is selecting which particular patch of ground shall henceforward be his own domain. A decision which sometimes entails the unseemly spectacle of a duel between father and son, should the latter wish to remain near his birthplace. The pretty little harvest mouse is in its nest among the cornstalks, a nest described by Gilbert White, who first discovered the little creature in this country as most artificially plaited and composed of the blades of wheat, perfectly round and about the size of a cricket ball, with the aperture so ingeniously closed that there was no discovering to what part it belonged. In these nests live a furry family of from five to eight or nine tiny young, the mother herself measuring only four and a half inches of which the tail accounts for nearly half. The harvest mouse, with the exception of its cousin the pygmy shrew, being the smallest of British mammals. There are probably several broods during a season, and the mice are often accidentally carried off among the ripened corn, spending their winter in the hayrick, in which case they remain active. But if living naturally in the field, they construct a burrow and hibernate, during the cold weather. The clouded yellow butterfly and pale clouded yellow are seen this month, the majority being most probably visitors from France, and their appearance, especially that of the pale clouded yellow, is uncertain. Various double-brooded butterflies and moths also appear. The green-veined and bath-white, the azure or holly-blue, the grizzled and the dingy skipper butterfly, and the chocolate tip and pebble hook tip moths, etc. The epithet double-brooded is misleading, for no one butterfly or moth really produces more than a single brood in a year. Their eggs are usually laid in summer, and the resulting caterpillars remain in the pupal state throughout the winter, emerging as adult insects next spring or early summer. These, in their turn, lay eggs which undergo the same process. But in some species, caterpillars hatched from eggs laid in spring become butterflies or moths in later summer, and so there is, as it were, a second crop of this particular species. For instance, the azure blue, which is a double-brooded butterfly, emerges from its pupal state in April or May, and the resulting caterpillars will appear as butterflies in August while the caterpillars hatched from the eggs of the August butterfly will pass the winter as pupae and emerge next April in their turn. In the case of the swallowtail and small copper butterfly, the number of broods is three. Some Lepidoptera, such as the pearl-bordered fritillary and the wall-brown butterfly, the hooktip and swallow-prominent moths are double-brooded in the south, but not the north of England. While others, such as the pale clouded yellow just mentioned, are double-brooded on the continent, but single-brooded in this country. In some cases, as in that of the lackey moth, eggs laid in autumn do not hatch till the following spring. In others, as that of the scotch argus butterfly, it is the caterpillar, and in the case of the small tortoiseshell butterfly, the perfect insect that hibernates. It is calculated that on an average, every female butterfly or moth lays annually from two to six hundred eggs. 
but the ravages of ichneumon flies, wasps, and birds prevent the caterpillars attaining maturity. The ichneumon fly, dreaded by all who keep collections of caterpillars, lays its eggs in the very body of the poor creature, and the young grubs feed on the vital juices of their host, gradually absorbing them till when the caterpillar should become a chrysalis, there is practically nothing left of it, its skin or chrysalis case being occupied with the pupae of its invaders. The fly itself feeds on the juices of plants. Wasps both devour caterpillars and carry them to their nests as food for their grubs, the solitary wall wasp first paralyzing them by stinging them, so that the caterpillar remains alive but helpless, and the young grub, emerging from its egg, finds food at hand. Clouds of ants now leave their nests, regularly rising and falling on gauzy wings as they float in vast columns through the air, selecting their mates in the moving maze. After this curious wedding flight, the object of which is to disperse the insects over fresh ground at a distance from the original nest, the males, and many of the females, disappear, the prey of birds and fish. The remaining females bite off their wings no longer necessary and found new colonies, depositing their eggs in cracks of the ground, avoiding places that are likely to be disturbed, and choosing the edges rather than the middle of a path. Another insect now in evidence is the obnoxious harvest mite, or harvest bug. This tiny crimson dot is the larva of the silky trombidium and lives a parasitic life, sucking nourishment from the unfortunate victim, human or animal, into which it has thrust its sharp mandibles. It is allied to the harmless money spinner. With the ripening corn, the first touch of autumn creeps into the names of our flowers. The rare autumnal squill, the autumn ladies' tresses with spiral spike of little white blossoms, and the familiar autumnal hawkbit, the fall dandelion of America, which may be distinguished from the others of its genus by the fact that, whereas the flowers of the other two species, the hairy and the rough hawkbit, droop while in bud, those of the autumnal hawkbit hold themselves erect. The common autumn gentian flowers this month. So do the Baltic gentian and the rare marsh gentian and scarce autumn gentian, the last similar to the first named but larger and differing in the lobes of its calyx, which in the common autumn gentian are nearly equal, in the scarce autumn gentian unequal. Various species of goosefoot are now in flower, the scientific and popular name suggested by the shape of the leaves. Greek hen, a goose, pus, a foot. The small greenish-colored flowers grow in spikes, much like sorrel. The two most common species are the white goosefoot, or fat hen, with powdered leaves, and the red goosefoot. Good King Henry, or all good, is used as spinach and is cultivated and known as mercury. The family is an important one, embracing the various mangold wurzels and beet, and including the Jerusalem oak. Other useful plants are the white whorehound, or whorehound, with whitish, and the black whorehound with purple, flowers. The latter belongs to a different genus and takes its scientific name, balote, rejected from its strong scent. The popular name refers to the white, hoary appearance of the hairy leaves. Of the various mints, the most common are the hairy, or capitate, 
and the horsemint. Both grow in damp places and are strongly scented, and both have lilac-colored flowers. But those of the hairy mint are born in rounded heads, and those of the horsemint in a spike. The spearmint, grown as a pot herb and occasionally found wild, is probably a cultivated form of the horsemint. Now, fragrant the tansy breathing from the meadows as the west wind bows down the long green grass. The plant is used in medicine, and its leaves were formerly employed in making Lenten cakes, also for the tansy puddings described by both Anne Pratt and the Reverend C.A. Johns as nauseous, though the former impartially adds, many country people, however, eat the puddings with much relish. This custom of eating tansy pudding and tansy cake at Easter, says Notes and Queries, is of very ancient origin and was no doubt to be traced to the Jewish custom of eating cakes made with bitter herbs. Numbers chapter 9 verse 2. But to take from it any Jewish character, at a very early date, it became the custom to eat pork or bacon with the cakes. Stripe, in Ellis's literary letters, speaks of having fish at dinner and tansy or pudding for supper. The name is a corruption of the Greek athanasia, Immortality, as though, Gerard says, it were immortal because the flowers do not easily wither away. But the prettiest of the August flowers is the common grass of Parnassus, with creamy white blossoms about the size of a buttercup, streaked with delicate green veins and a green center, surrounded with curious fan-shaped scales fringed with white hairs. It takes its name from Mount Parnassus, and is so known on the continent, where the French call it Fleur de Parnassou, and the Italians, Spanish, and Portuguese, Parnasia. It is a native of the United States, and various members of the genus are found in cold and wet regions from the mountains of India northwards to the Arctic Circle. The soapwort, Saponaria officinalis, with handsome rose-colored flowers, was formerly used for cleansing purposes its leaves and roots being rich in saponin, which lathers freely in water, hence both its scientific and popular name from the Latin sapo, soap. Anglo-Saxon sapa, another name, is fuller's herb. The salwort, too, flowers this month. So does the corn sow thistle and the rare alpine sausuria with heliotrope-scented flowers, while by the shore we find the sea spurge, sea purslane, and marshmallow. Like the common mallow, this plant contains a healing mucilage and is used in medicine. Here, too, we may find the rare slender hare's ear or buplever, and the still rarer seaside knotgrass, the former in salt marshes, the latter on sandy seashores in the southwest. The sea campion, which flowers throughout the summer, may be distinguished from the bladder campion, or white bottle, by its larger flowers with slightly cleft petals, those of the bladder campion being more deeply cut. Here, too, are the sea lavender, the purple sea rocket, and the sea milkwort, without petals, but with pink calyx dotted with crimson. The sea holly was formerly supposed to have the magical power of ensuring fidelity, and is said to have been vainly used by Sappho to win the love of Phaon. The roots furnished a tonic and, candied with sugar, 
were the kissing comfits of Queen Elizabeth's day. And now, let us leave the margin of the shore and walk for a while on the beach, exploring the rock pools and flat stretches of sand. Here, in deep water, grows the common grass rack with long stems, bright green narrow leaves, one to three feet in length and about three-eighths of an inch wide. Though apparently a seaweed, it is a true flowering plant with creeping root and simple blossoms covered by a kind of sheath, whereas the true seaweeds are rootless, fastening themselves to rock or stone by a kind of sucker and propagating themselves by means of spores. Under the name of alva, dried grass rack is largely used for packing china, glass, etc., and for stuffing mattresses. The seagrass covers both stone and wooden breakwater with soft, narrow fronds, each fixed firmly at the base and absorbing its nourishment from the salt water in which it floats. It is a true seaweed, as is the sea lettuce or sea laver, so well known to all keepers of marine aquaria for its capacity of forming oxygen in sunshine, so preserving the purity of the water. A fisherman's name is oyster green, the seaweed being used for covering oysters for market. Both this and another species are sometimes used as food, as is the purple laver, which is superior in flavour and known in Ireland and Scotland as sloke and sloken. It is also called laverwort. The red dulse is also edible, and the carrageen or Irish moss is used for making blamange, soup, etc. Also for size and for fattening pigs. The four most common racks, the bladder rack, notched rack, knobbed rack, and channel or channeled rack, may be distinguished from each other. The first by its mid-rib and the oval bladders of air which pop so delightfully underfoot and which serve to buoy up the weed underwater. The second by its notched edges. The knobbed rack by the oval swellings or lumps along the frond. It has no midrib and is of lighter color than the other three. And the channeled by its deep furrow. The fronds too are narrower and more branched than are those of the first three. The beautiful braided hair seaweed has delicate pink fronds. Griffithsia is rosy red, and the peacock's tail is gay with rings of orange, green, yellow, gray, and red. It is from two to five inches in length and shaped like the tail of a peacock. The common ore weed grows in deep water and reaches the length of 10 or 11 feet. Detached portions of its long, thick stem and broad ribbon-like leaves are constantly washed up on shore. The stem is used for making handles, the tang of a knife blade being thrust into the soft seaweed while it is still fresh. The drying of the weed contracts the handle firmly round the blade, and one good stem will yield a dozen or more handles. That long, slippery, rounded strip of brown weed is the corda filum. It consists of one cylindrical, tubular frond and varies in length from 1 to 30 or 40 feet. The brittle little coralline was for long a puzzle to naturalists, but is now definitely relegated to the vegetable kingdom. While growing, it is purple in color, but taken from the water, the purple tint disappears, leaving the chalky skeleton that misled the scientific world.
The seamat and sea fur, on the other hand, are members of the animal kingdom, the homes of myriads of tiny dwellers, each inhabiting its separate cell. The moss-like appearance of the seamat, covered with the protruding heads of these little creatures, caused the general name of moss animals to be given to such colonies. The sea fur is related to the jellyfish, and the young of both sea fur and seamat animals swim freely in the sea before settling down to colony life. They are propagated from eggs and also by buds like the freshwater hydra, etc. The white patches on racks and other seaweeds are the work of various species of moss animals. Seabirds are wheeling overhead. Most of them various species of gulls and terns, but we may see the long-necked cormorant, the gannet or solen goose, the shearwater, the guillemot, and the quaint little puffin, sometimes called sea parrot, from the shape of his bright red and yellow beak, while the lively little oyster catcher or sea pie runs briskly over the sand. The rocks are dotted with limpets, acorn barnacles or acorn shells, periwinkles, and other species of sea snail. The periwinkles and other snails feed on seaweed, which they rasp off with their wonderful tooth ribbon, a gristly tongue supplied with hundreds of minute teeth arranged in rows of three, rolled up in the mouth in such a way that as the teeth in use are wearing out, a fresh piece of tongue is brought forward. The limpet feeds in the same way, usually returning to its old place on the rock when its hunger is satisfied. The acorn barnacle was described by Professor Huxley as a crustacean fixed by its head and kicking its food into its mouth by its legs. Like the sea mats, it is a free-swimming animal when first hatched, but soon settles down to a sedentary existence, fixing itself as described by the back of the head and fishing for food with the long filaments that represent its legs. Though furnished with a shell, the acorn barnacle is not a mollusk, but belongs to the Cirripedes, a division of the crustaceans, and is therefore akin to the crab and lobster. The dogwinkle, or dog periwinkle, is rather like a whelk in the shape of its shell, which varies in color from white to brown. The dog whelk may be known by the bead-like ridges running down its shell. It too feeds on seaweed, but the true whelk, known in Scotland as the bucky, is carnivorous and terribly destructive boring with its file-like tongue through the thickest shells. Its soft masses of eggs are, like those of the frog, diminutive when first laid, but quickly swell in the surrounding moisture. Other common egg cases are those of the skate and dogfish, known as mermaids' purses. The eggs of the skate have a pointed handle at each corner, while those of the dogfish have been compared to a pillowcase with strings. The purpura is about the size and shape of the dog periwinkle. Indeed, both this name and that of dog whelk are sometimes applied to it. It has a pale colored shell, usually marked with two or three bands of light yellowish brown. The famous dye used for the imperial robe of the Roman emperors was prepared from this little mollusk. And as only a single drop was obtained from each animal, thousands must have been slaughtered for its manufacture. The coloring fluid is contained in a small sack and is at first of a milky appearance, changing while drying through yellow, blue, and green to reddish purple. The eggs of the purpura look rather like grains of corn standing on end. Each is fixed by a tiny stalk 
and contains several inmates. Very fascinating are the shapes and colors of the empty shells cast up by the waves. The handsome scallop or pectin, the ladder shell or wentil trap, the little cowrie, the pearly top or top shell, like an inverted top or pyramid with mother-of-pearl-like mouth, the sunset shell, chalky without and rosy pink within, the gaper, the snowy white cliff-boring piddock, the smaller brownish-yellow little piddock, the razor shell, the curious pinna, the homely cockle and mussel, each with its tail of a little vanished occupant. Did he stand at the diamond door of his house in a rainbow frill? Did he push when he was uncurled a golden foot or a fairy horn through his dim water world? Some leap, some delve, some shovel out their homes in the soft sand. Some fasten their frail selves with self-made cable to the half-merged rock. Some patient bore away the stony cliff, forming a palace cellular. In the pools, we may find the breadcrumb and grantia sponges, and here lurk or dart the little five-bearded rockling, blackish-brown on the back and silvery beneath. The bright little rainbow wrasse, the smooth blenny with crimson-circled eye, also called the shanny and tansy, the one-spotted goby with single spot on the first dorsal fin, the two-spotted and the larger black goby, prawns too, and shrimps with grey semi-transparent bodies, the prawn with pointed and the shrimp with blunt face. The Aesop prawn is covered with scarlet streaks and its antennae ringed with the same colour. It takes its name from the hunched appearance of its back, like that of the supposed author of the fables. The sand skipper or sand hopper may be found in the pools or jumping on the sand by bending the body and suddenly straightening it, or burrowed beneath the surface till the tide comes up. Cockles, razor shells, and sand or lugworms also burrow and may be traced, the first two by the round hole left in the sand and the last much used for bait by the twisted casts of sand at the top of its hole. The nereus is a brown worm, at first sight rather like a centipede, with a dark red line running down its back and a glossy pink below. It is usually found under stones. The pretty little serpula worm makes a twisting stony tube on shell or stone from which a delicate tuft of bright crimson gills is protruded. The sabella builds itself a narrow tube of grains of sand fastened with a natural glue. The terabellas do the same. One species, the shellbinder, using little pieces of shell for the purpose. The tube of a terabella differs from that of a sabella in being furnished with a fringe made of especially tiny grains round the mouth. All these sea worms are furnished with bristles throughout their entire length which bristles in the sea mouse take the form of a matted coat choked with mud. But wash the little creature in clean salt water and it glows with all the colors of the rainbow. The curious sea egg or sea urchin is closely allied to the starfish, of which the five-fingered and sun starfish are the most common. The brittle and the bird's foot starfish living in deep water are less often seen. The apparently dead crabs lying on the sand are most probably cast off shells, for when a crab, prawn, etc. changes its coat 
Everything, even to the covering of the eye, is cast off. And in the case of the crab, where the carapace lifts from the back and then closes up again after the animal has emerged, the cast shell looks exactly like the live animal. The crab most frequently seen is the little green or shore crab, the velvet swimming, velvet fiddler, or devil crab with downy shell and flattened legs which enable it to move easily through the water and, from their action in swimming, give it its name of fiddler, the motion resembling that of a person playing the violin. The common swimming crab found on the coast of Scotland, the hermit crab, the little pea crab living among mussels and inhabiting their shells, and the various spider crabs, of which the most common are the four-horned spider crab, the long-beaked spider, the masked and the thornback crabs, the last furnished with spines on which it fastens pieces of wood, sponge, etc., to conceal it from its enemies. The edible crab lives in deep water, but young specimens may occasionally be found in pools. Of the beautiful little sea anemones, the smooth or beadlet anemone with smooth skin and turquoise beads round its mouth is the most common, and the handsome thick-armed anemone the largest. The daisy anemone may be known by its grey and white-ringed tentacles. Its colour is pale greyish-yellow, while the beautiful snake-locked anemone, with long whitish tentacles, is found chiefly in Devonshire and Cornwall. If you have enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating or a review on iTunes. Thank you for listening to the Charlotte Mason Poetry Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the program.